Welcome for our sermon for August 2nd, titled Jacob's Wrestlings, the Trickster, Part 1. Uh, first section, as good as your word. We appreciate it when someone is truthful with us, not twisting the facts or holding something back or outright lying to us. When they're being honest with us, it shows respect, it builds our trust in them and strengthens the relationship. But lying is deceitful and erodes trust quickly. You feel like you've been treated like dirt. We've been hearing about fake news lately. Well, it's been around a while. This fake news happened in the late 1800s. Discovering that most people believe everything they hear and read, a young reporter in Connecticut decided to make a name for himself. His name was Lewis Stone, and for nearly two decades, he fabricated stories throughout America about such freaks of nature as a tree that produced baked apples, a squirrel that brushed its master's shoes with its tail every morning, and a cow owned by two spinsters that was so modest she would not allow a man to milk her. Lewis Stone, the reporter, was eventually exposed as the Winstead Liar, and Winstead, Connecticut, became famous because of his notoriety. Some of you will remember the comedians named the Smothers Brothers. Tommy Smothers once said, the best thing about getting older is that you gain sincerity. Once you learn to fake that, there's nothing you can't do. <laughs> Trustworthiness and honesty are vital ingredients of integrity. Can people take us at our word? It goes back to the root qualities of God's very nature. Faithfulness is one of those key virtues of the Lord that make an anchor in our lives. It's at the heart of our belief in God that he is, in fact, believable. We can put our confidence in him because he's consistent, not arbitrary or untruthful. Psalm 117 is the shortest psalm in the Bible, celebrating two key qualities of God. What are they? Psalm 117.2 says, For great is his love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. That's the Hebrew word emet, uh, faithfulness there. Firmness, faithfulness, truth, sureness, reliability. When the Hebrew ex-slaves were about to enter the promised land, the Lord gave Balaam an oracle which said, Numbers 23.19, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? The entire Bible, in a way, is a book of precious promises, many already fulfilled, some still awaiting fulfillment at a time yet in the future. Jesus, at his arrest, was very conscious of proceeding so the scriptures would be fulfilled, Mark 1449. By contrast, lying is forbidden. God commands us not to be untruthful. In the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20:16, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. And God is more to the point in Leviticus 19:11, which says, Do not steal, do not lie, do not deceive one another. It's particularly painful when someone lies to us that is close to us, a family member or close friend, someone that we thought we could count on. Judas the disciple would be a case in point. His betrayal of Jesus is so dastardly because he was a close associate, one of the twelve, and trusted even with the group's money bag. Yet at a crucial moment, he led Jesus' enemies to their private location in the Garden of Gethsemane, 
and betrayed his master with the sign of a kiss. A kiss! A gesture that's supposed to signify true affection. In today's passage, as we begin our new series on the life of Jacob the patriarch and forebear the nation of Israel, we see some of these dynamics at work. It's part of Jacob's maturing and growth in godliness that in a way may be representative of those of us who are following Jesus. Next section, let's make a deal. Genesis 25 tells us Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah. Their twins weren't born till he was 60. That means for 20 years the couple were childless. Isaac prayed to the Lord for Rebekah on account of her barrenness and God granted them children. But while they were still in the womb, the twins jostled each other so much that Rebekah inquired of the Lord about it. Genesis 25:23. The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. Even before they were born, God foretold the one being last would end up being first. When the twins were born, the first was reddish and very hairy, so he was named Esau, which means hairy, or also referred to as Edom, which means red. But as he was born, the second child, also a boy, had his hand around his brother's heel. So they called him Jacob, meaning he grasps the heel. Figuratively, he deceives. So there's the connotation of being Grabby, grasping, taking what's not really his, taking advantage, perhaps exploiting a situation. Do you know any grabby people? Is there someone you're conscious of avoiding because whenever they come to see you, it's usually to hit you up for something? Are there times in your life when others have taken advantage of you, perhaps held on to something that wasn't rightfully theirs? In Jacob's name, there's this grasping or, or grabby shading. It's part of Jacob's faith journey to eventually grow out of this grabbiness directed at helping himself, learning instead to hold on tight to God and trust God to lead. Well, as the boys grew up, you couldn't imagine two brothers who were more opposite. Esau loved to hunt. Jacob hung around the tents, probably helped his mom in the kitchen, learning to be an expert cook. Jacob had smooth skin, while Esau seemed to be wearing a hairy rug all the time. Isaac, the father, grew fond of Esau, while Jacob was his mother's favorite. To understand this story, you've got to appreciate the custom of the time regarding birthright and blessing. Normally, the birthright went to the oldest son in a family. Basically, it was a double portion of the inheritance. If there are three sons, for example, instead of dividing it three ways, you divide the estate four ways, and the oldest would get two quarters or a half, while the two other sons would receive just a quarter. The blessing, on the other hand, was a verbal proclamation made by the father near death when he officially announced the oldest, usually to be his successor, and made it official that that son would receive the extra portion of inheritance and be the clan leader and spiritually responsible, so a priest of sorts. Authorities have found examples in neighboring cultures indicating this verbal pronouncement was accepted as legally binding, just the same as if by an oath made in court. You just didn't go against the dying man's decision and declaration. 
Now, chapter 25 tells about a time in the boy's lives when Esau didn't have success out on the hunt. Extremely hungry, he came in and the aroma of a lentil stew Jacob happened to be cooking came wafting across his nostrils. It smelled so good, Esau decided he just had to have some of it. 25.30, he said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. Remember we talked about Jacob being the grabby one? Well, his entrepreneurial skills and market savvy kicked into high gear. Supply and demand. You can see the wheels turning in Jacob's calculating mind. Low price elasticity. He's going to want that stew no matter how much I ask him to pay. Jacob decided to go for broke. 2531. Jacob replied, first sell me your birthright. Ravenous with hunger, Esau exaggerated the situation. His senses were riveted on that tasty red stew. 25.32. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? About to die? Now, that's got to be an overstatement. But salesman Jacob had his customer right where he wanted him. After making Esau swear an oath, Jacob ladled up the lentil stew for him. The author of Genesis notes 25.34. So Esau despised his birthright. He put short-term satisfaction ahead of long-term interests that were really much more significant. And Jacob was right there, all set to capitalize on a golden opportunity. Next section, covering up costly subterfuge. Now, what Jacob did in trading the stew for the birthright was not too terrible. It was basically good marketing. Yes, he perhaps was exploiting his brother's lack at a moment of weakness, but there wasn't anything actually morally wrong about the deal he'd made. Shrewd, but not crooked. Yet things eventually took a very shadowy turn. Years later, Isaac was 137 years old, and the twins would have been 77. Isaac had gone blind and felt he was about to die, though in fact he lived another 43 years. Nevertheless, he decided it was time to set his affairs in order and officially confer the birthright on Esau. The boys maybe hadn't let him in on their little arrangement by pronouncing the deathbed blessing, which would make it binding. So in Genesis 27, he sends Esau off to hunt some tasty wild game, the sort Isaac had a liking for, and prepare a meal for the occasion. Now Rebecca, Isaac's wife and mother of the twins, overhears this and hatches a plan. It seems she has either forgotten or maybe doesn't trust God's promise from the time when both boys were struggling inside her womb that the older would actually serve the younger. Rather than trusting and waiting for God to work things out, she decided to take matters into her own hands and force things to happen in her own way. Hmm, are we like that? Have we become impatient waiting for the Lord to work it out in his own timing? She shares her clever scheme with Jacob, her favorite son, who at 77 should have been able to make up his own mind as to what's right by now. But he's a compliant kid, and besides uh, what she's suggesting, is to his own advantage. Basically, the plan goes like this. While Esau is hunting, Jacob would take some goats from the pen, butcher them, Rebecca would doctor it up just the way her husband likes, and Jacob would dress up pretending to be Esau so he would receive the blessing and associated privileges instead of Esau. Nervy, bold, 
dodgy, time-sensitive, but it might just work. A side comment here, how tragic it is that this couple's interests have become so divided that Rebecca and Isaac are now actually working in opposition to each other. Come on, husbands and wives, get on the same page. Whatever happened to one flesh, marital unity, being bone of my bones? They had drifted so far apart to the point of outright undermining each other. Verses 11 and 12 record Jacob's objection. However, he does not object on the basis of principle. He objects on the basis he might get caught. Jacob seems to have absorbed his mother's shrewdness, her determination to get her own way and see her own plans advance, regardless of the fallout for others. They are both well aware the path contemplated is morally wrong. 27.12 What if my father touches me? I would appear to be tricking him and would rather bring down a curse on myself rather than a blessing. Think about it. Isaac is old and blind. They're plotting to exploit his disability, not being able to see, in order to thwart his legitimate desire, bless his oldest son. Later in Leviticus 19, a few verses after the prohibition against lying, we read Leviticus 19, 14, do not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block in front of the blind, but fear your God. I am the Lord. God states it in a way that identifies himself with the interests of the handicapped. If we mess with them, we'll have to answer to him. He's just plain mean and cruel and counter-godly to exploit the disabled. Secular cultures can be cruel to the weakest among them. Evolution lauds the survival of the fittest. Our family lived in Brazzaville, Congo for a couple of years back in the early 80s when I served with Christian Blind Mission. Up the road, there was a young blind girl, Solange, who the family kept in a dark corner of the living room as if they were ashamed of her. We befriended her, bringing her to our place occasionally to play with our toddler daughter, Emily, and the neighbors were surprised. They hadn't recalled ever seeing her outside the house before. Revering God leads us to treat other humans with care and respect. It ennobles the disadvantaged. Well, Rebecca wins her son's support for her evil plan. He becomes her willing accomplice. Verse 13, My son, let the curse fall on me. Just do as I say. Hmm. When's another time in the ages when our curse fell on someone else? Jesus became a curse on our behalf at the cross. We start to see pointers in this story of Jesus identifying with us sinners, taking our place, bearing our shame for our wrongs. The plan is hatched and executed. The timing is consummate. Goatskins make Harry Jacob's exposed surfaces, his hands and the back of his neck. And Father Isaac consumes hungrily enough the tasty meat. But something's not quite right. Did Isaac notice it didn't exactly taste like venison? But maybe his wife's spices covered that up. Blind people become particularly reliant upon their hearing, so sounds are very important to them. And this son lacked Esau's usual huskiness, he-manness, perhaps. Isaac's verification process forces Jacob into at least half a dozen lies or half-truths to cover up his real identity. These are in verses 18 to 24. Who is it? Isaac asks. 
I am Esau, your firstborn, Jacob says. Well, that's lie number one. He goes on, I have done as you told me. Hmm, nothing of the sort. That's lie two. Eat some of my game so that you may give me your blessing. It's not game. That's lie three. Isaac probes, how did you find it so quickly, my son? Hmm, good point. Hunting takes time and patience. Jacob can't reveal he simply walked over to the goat pen now, can he? So he states, the Lord your God gave me success. Huh, lie four. Bringing God into it now, are we? Jacob crosses a new threshold of evil deception, and the callus around his spirit grows a new layer. He's appealing verbally to an authority he's not submitting to by his immediate action. Note he says, your God, not my God. We won't see Jacob appeal to the Lord as his own God until much later in life, 3320, when he returns from far off Haran. Now comes the real test. Besides hearing, blind people rely heavily on touch. The way we taught blind people to weed gardens in Brazzaville was to identify two plants by touch, spacing, texture, and then weed everything in between. Isaac beckons, come near so I can touch you, my son, to know whether you really are my son Esau or not. Well, Jacob goes closer to him, lie five or deception five. Although Isaac knows it's Jacob's voice he's hearing, the hands of the goatskins are actually hairy like Esau's. One final time, Isaac questions, verse 24. Are you really my son Esau, he asked. I am, he replied. Lie six. Jacob's in so deep now, there's no backing out. After Isaac eats the food prepared, he asks Jacob to kiss him, which he does. What irony. A kiss to seal the deal of subterfuge. On another occasion, many centuries later, Judas would signify to Jesus' enemies who the master of the little band of disciples was. Luke 22, verse 48, Jesus asked him, Judas, who are, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? What answer can you give to a question like that? You've just emptied the gesture that's supposed to be the most tender expression in human intimacy of its import. It's uberly subversive, the epitome of backstabbing. Our Lord deserves better from us than that. After all that, Rebecca's nefarious plan achieves its goal. Isaac blesses Jacob instead of Esau. The patriarch bequeathed prosperity and prominence to the wrong kid. Here's 29a. May nations serve you and peoples bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may the sons of your mother bow down to you. Dominance is assured. Rebecca's favorite won out over her husband's favorite. But didn't the wind seem kind of hollow to Jacob as he heard the words his dad said meant for someone else? This wasn't him. Verse 27b. Ah, oh, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. It was just because Jacob was wearing Esau's clothes. This blessing is for you, but not really you. You are standing in another's place. And what was the cost of the successful plan? 
Had they known the consequences, Rebecca and her son might never have pursued it. Life Application Bible points out the consequences of the deceit. First, Jacob never saw his mother again. Two, his brother wanted to kill him. Three, he was deceived by his uncle Laban. Four, his family became torn by strife. Five, Esau became the founder of an enemy nation. And six, Jacob was exiled from his family for years. Sin has consequences, often that far outweigh any short-term gain brought about by the disobedience. And Rebecca was forgetting God's decree years before that Jacob would have become the dominant twin anyway, 25-23. Life Application Bible comments. Imagine how different his life would have been had he and his mother waited for God to work his way in his time. Next section, clothed with Christ, dead to the old self. As we read this Old Testament story through our New Testament lens, we may be struck by some parallels. Jacob was trying so hard to be acceptable to the father whose favor he did not have. It only worked when he literally covered himself with skins of animals that were sacrificed. At the cross, we see that Jesus has become our holy substitute, the solution for our sins and falling short, the eraser for our shame, the one through whom we can become acceptable to the Almighty Father of humankind. He came and stood in the place of us sinners, bearing our shame and punishment that he did not deserve. Through his blood, our sins are covered, removed, so when God looks at us in Christ, he sees Christ's own righteousness. A sacrificial covenant meal is involved, communion, the meaning of which points to Jesus' substitution for sinners. Jesus attached these words and meanings to it, Matthew 26, 26. Take and eat, this is my body. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The Apostle Paul urges the church at Rome to become other than they are through faith in Jesus, to die in a way to their old sinful selves, become clothed not with goat skins, but with Christ. Romans 13, 11 to 14, Paul writes, The hour has come for you to wake from slumber, for, because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over, the day is almost here, so... Let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. Do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Wow. Don't even think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh, the sinful nature of the old man. That involves dying to self, consciously putting on Jesus like a garment to wear moment by moment. An end to drunkenness, debauchery, dissension. We might extend that to lying, exploiting others like the mother and son in this story did, cheating a family member out of what was rightfully his a death to the selfish drives that strive to put us ahead of others, grabbing from them, instead of waiting for God to bring about his promised blessings in his way. Last month, my grandson, Kasher, was baptized at the Christian Missionary Alliance Church they attend in Barhead, Alberta. 
I'd like us to watch him sharing his testimony because he seemed to capture some of the essence of what Christian baptism is all about in terms of dying so Jesus can become Lord of our choices. We'll roll that video on. Jesus into my heart when I was six years old. I understand that Jesus died on the cross to take our sins away and so we can have the Holy Spirit on earth, earth and we can go to heaven. Now I don't have to worry about my sins anymore because God already forgave them. Jesus wants to give me the ability to gospel and to have faith and courage through the Holy Spirit. I want Jesus to be Lord over my life so he, he can make my choices for me, especially when I'm in hard times. God has told me that someday I will die for him. I accept this even though it will be hard and kind of scary. I want to be baptized when I can show the world that I died for him and want to live with him and grow together with him. Kasher ended with this. He said, God has told me that someday I will die for him. I accept this even though it will be hard and kind of scary. I want to be baptized so that I can show the world that I died with him and I went in the grave with him and rose again with him. I really hope he's wrong about that dying because of preaching part, though with the way the world is going, persecution is likely going to become more prevalent here in the West. But even if we're not called to die physically for the Lord, are we ready to die to selfish choices, to share in his death so we can experience his Holy Spirit's leading and Jesus' resurrection power? Let's pray. Lord, we come to you aware of our many sins and we don't deserve your blessing. Like Rebecca and Jacob, we have schemed and plotted and connived, yet our plans backfire and we find ourselves further from you than ever. Have mercy on us. Forgive our sins. Wash us in the flow from the cross of Jesus. Let your Holy Spirit move us to do what's right, loving you foremost and loving one another, relinquishing our own grabbiness so our hands can be open to receive what you have for us. In Jesus' name. Amen.